Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses HP Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one is going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. 
But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Hello and welcome to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast where every episode we review a quasi-random weird fiction short story. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. So tonight we're live from PhilCon, which is the longest running science fiction convention in the world. We want to take a moment and thank everybody here who came out to watch the show. We hope you enjoy it. We'll be talking about H.P. Lovecraft's story from beyond This is one of Lovecraft's earlier stories. It was written in the 1920s, but it wasn't published until 1934. Yeah, I was really surprised to learn that. I was surprised to learn that this story sat around in Lovecraft's trunk for more than a a decade before someone finally bought it, because this is probably one of my favorite Lovecraft stories, and I think it's actually a real masterpiece. In fact, I think it's probably his first masterpiece. This story, From Beyond, for me at least, which was, I guess, about the 20th story or so that he wrote, at least by the way that we count them now, as an adult, we should say, I suppose. But for me, this story signals really the arrival of the Lovecraft who wrote The Call of Cthulhu. We're going to be talking a little bit about S.T. Joshi, the weird fiction scholar, really the love, the Lovecraft scholar. And he doesn't think this is one of Lovecraft's stronger stories. I, I disagree with him there a little bit. I think it's another really strong story of Lovecraft's. But this story is sort of a foundational story in a lot of the works that come later. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we get into the story. So let's just get into the action of the story. Right. So From Beyond is a first-person account of you know, something horrific, right? Something that we, the audience, are going to learn about from an unnamed narrator. Uh, All of this, right, this setup here is pretty classic Lovecraft. Uh, Another classic Lovecraft move that we get in this story, of course, is that it is a story about two dudes who are best friends. One of them is crazy, of course, right? Or, you know, if not actually crazy, he's at least crazy obsessed with something that is going to make him actually crazy by the end of the story. And that guy is Crawford Tillinghast, who is a scientist of sorts, and he's been isolated for 10 weeks as the story opens while he's been dialing his mad science experiments up to 11 in the lab that he keeps in the attic of his house. And we actually get some backstory about this before the the present narrative really begins. So the narrator explains that he knows precisely what sort of mad scientist experiment Tillinghast is up to, even though, of course, right, he's not going to tell us, the readers, uh, about what he's what he knows until much later in the story, right? Because that's how stories work. We want the revelation at the end as part of the climax. But when Tillinghast told the narrator what he was up to, the narrator told him to stop. And Tillinghast then threw him out of his house and hasn't left his house himself since that point. And now the story opens with the narrator arriving at Tillinghast's house. He's, he's responding to an urgent message that he's received in the middle of the night. And he is shocked to see how terrible his friend looks. And we get a great line about this. Uh, Lovecraft writes, It is not pleasant to see a stout man suddenly grown thin, and it is even worse when the baggy skin becomes yellowed or grayed, the eyes sunken, circled, and uncannily glowing, the forehead veined and corrugated, and the hands tremulous and twitching. So 
he's really in bad shape. And all of this, I have to say, I think, Brandon, for me, at least this is quite a setup, right? All of this is just the opening paragraph of the story. That's all this is so far. And immediately... I'm hooked, right? I want to know what are the mad science experiments that are going on here. And I want to know why the mad scientist is sending urgent messages at at midnight. Yeah, you're right. This is a really strong opening for a Lovecraft story. And you're absolutely right to point out all the elements that Lovecraft introduces in the first paragraph that make this a classic Lovecraft tale. We see, as you said, the two best friends plot show up in other stories like the statement of Randolph Carter and Herbert West reanimator and and by the way both reanimator and this story were made into movies by Stuart gordon that's just a little side note but this obsession of tillinghasts which i think is one of lovecraft's better names uh does completely isolate him tillinghast to the point where even his friend isn't welcome at his home and we'll get more on what that means to tillinghast a little bit later on The descriptive language that Lovecraft uses here really does set up the story well. We get a sense of the physical appearance of the man Tillinghast, where he lives, which is a pretty great gothic setting. And all of this comes just right off the bat. And I was also just into this story from the first paragraph. Lovecraft now is about to tell us a little bit more about Tillinghast, the man, and how he came to be driven mad. Right. So after this this hook, right, all of these these hooks that Lovecraft employs here, the narrator tells us a little bit about Crawford Tillinghast as a, a character. He says that Tillinghast should never have studied science and philosophy, right? This was a big mistake because these things should be left to the frigid and the impersonal investigator because they offer two equally tragic alternatives to someone who's a man of action, someone who is prone to feeling emotions. And the first of these options here, the first of these alternatives is if an emotional man of action should fail to find what he's looking for in these experiments, then he's going to suffer from despair, from from hopelessness, right? But the other option, the second option here is that if he doesn't find what he's looking for, or rather, sorry, if he does find what he's looking for in his experiments, then what he's going to get are unimaginable and unutterable terrors. And this sentiment here, right, this is another common theme in Lovecraft we've seen before on the show, right? This idea that the world is terrifying for emotional people. So it's just better to be dispassionate. It's better to be logical, right? Right? To just not have any emotions at all. Basically, Lovecraft is articulating here Vulcan philosophy. Yeah, this section is really funny. And I I just want to highlight really this bit about the type of temperament needed, according to Lovecraft, or at least Lovecraft's narrator, to study science and philosophy. As you said, Lovecraft writes that these things should be left to the frigid and impersonal investigator, the the Vulcan type of mind. And it's a strange attitude to me that really digs into some sort of an enlightenment ideal of a purely objective observer. But I think at this point, we've learned that you really can't separate the personal interest in a problem or the value of the personal interest in in that question from the experiment. And sometimes I wonder if Lovecraft is challenging the notion of the ideal objective observer with some of his stories. And I I think as we'll see in this story, Lovecraft is maybe investigating uh, the catastrophe associated with the philosopher or or scientist having a personal motivation for conducting experiments. Uh, But maybe the problem that Lovecraft is highlighting here isn't one of whether or not they're objective enough or whether they can uh, have that purely rational mind uh, being a purely rational and logical being like a Vulcan, but that certain character flaws can be exacerbated by these types of experiments. But in any event, 
uh, you know, this isn't the only Lovecraft story that this idea shows up in. And as, as you said, Glenn, this is really, really a common theme. And, and maybe we'll have time to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on with this idea uh, after we get through the plot of the story. Right. And well, the insinuation here is that Crawford Tillinghast is an emotional man of action. And so he never had any business doing this to begin with. We have seen Lovecraft do this move before, but he has shown us actually the dispassionate, logical person who has still suffered a, a breakdown uh, because of this. But here he's just leaning full into that this guy, Crawford Tillinghast, had no business doing this at all. And we're going to get some more backstory here. And I have to say, by the way, Brandon, that I love the structure of this story, the way that Lovecraft weaves all this backstory into the present narrative rather than just giving it to us all at once. This is actually a pretty sophisticated technique. And since, of course, we're not doing these Lovecraft stories in order on the podcast, I don't know if this is the first time he's done it, but it's certainly the first time we've seen him do it of the, the five or so stories that we've we've covered of Lovecraft so far. But anyway, so at this point, the, the narrator had warned Tillinghast that he was just too emotional to be doing the type of science that he's doing. And this is what got the narrator thrown out of the house. And in response to the narrator's objections, then, Tillinghast here in this moment delivers the first of four mad scientist monologues. And these monologues are really the heart of the story. And I have to say, I think that they are pretty awesome. I think that the highlight of the story, not just the heart of the story. And if you're in an acting class and you're looking for a monologue, this is a great place to go. I don't know if you've got an audition. This is a great place to go. All of this is to say I am not an actor, but I'm going to try to do my best with a few of these, a few of these monologues anyway. So here's the first one. This is going to be the easier one of the two that I'm going to do here. All right. So here it goes. What do we know of the world and the universe about us? Our means of receiving impressions are absurdly few, and our notions of surrounding objects infinitely narrow. We see things only as we are constructed to see them, and can gain no idea of their absolute nature. With five feeble senses, we pretend to comprehend the boundlessly complex cosmos. Yet other beings, with a wider, stronger, or different range of senses, might not only see very differently the things we see, but might see and study whole worlds of matter, energy, and life, which lie close at hand, yet can never be detected with the senses we have. I have always believed that such strange, inaccessible worlds exist at our very elbows, and now I believe I have found a way to break down the barriers. I am not joking. Within 24 hours, that machine near the table will generate waves acting on unrecognized sense organs that exist in us as atrophied or rudimentary vestiges. Those waves will open up to us many vistas unknown to man, and several unknown to anything we consider organic life. We shall see that at which dogs howl in the dark, and that at which cats prick up their ears after midnight. We shall see these things and other things which no breathing creature has yet seen. We shall overleap time, space, and dimensions, and without bodily motion, peer at the bottom of creation." This this is really a great monologue, and and I just want to start by saying yeah, that was a great reading, Glenn. That's a so, solid reading of a Lovecraft mad scientist monologue, um, and I also want to say that I like how you pointed to the structure of the story because to me this is an example of how to do flashback right. Flashback does not dominate the structure of the story, but it just catches us up to the present in a really unobtrusive 
way. But back to the monologue. This monologue in particular was a big clue for S.T. Joshi, uh, the, the noted Lovecraft scholar and critic, as I mentioned before, about the source of the ideas that Lovecraft pulled on for this story. And as Joshi also points out, ideas that Lovecraft continued to carry with him throughout his writing career. In 1919, the English science writer Hugh Elliott published a book called Materialism and Modern Science. And in an essay he wrote for the magazine, Crypt of Cthulhu, S.T. Joshi notes that the similarity between this speech and a passage from Elliott's book really can't be ignored. Uh, Elliott wrote this passage that I'm about to read in his introduction to materialism and modern science. And we'll see that they are really, really similar to this crazy mad scientist monologue. Are are you going to do this as a mad scientist? I am not. I'm (laughs) going to read it like a philosopher. Yeah, that's probably the right way to go. (laughs) But this is what Elliot wrote. He said, let us first ask why it is that all past efforts to solve ultimate riddles have failed and why it is that they must continue to fail. It is in the first place due to the fact that all knowledge is based on sense impressions and cannot, therefore, go beyond what the senses can perceive. Men have five or six different senses only, and these are all founded on the one original sense of touch. Of these five or six senses, the three of the most important for the accumulation of knowledge are those of sight, hearing, and touch. But these senses... By these senses, we are able to detect three separate qualities of the external universe. Now, supposing that we happen to have a thousand senses instead of five, and this line it comes up directly in another monologue, it is clear that our conception of the universe would be extremely different from what it is now. We cannot assume that the universe has only five qualities because we have only five senses. We must assume, on the contrary, that the number of its qualities may be infinite, and that the more senses we had, the more we should discover. So Lovecraft, Lovecraft is clearly drawing on this reference of Eliot and is concerned with the philosophical problem of what things are or what is a thing in itself, which is kind of a Kantian question. Uh, uh, what is a thing apart from our ability to observe it? And, you know, Lovecraft is just about to explore some reasons why our senses might be limited and, and they might be some pretty good reasons why our senses are limited. I, I love what you've brought to the table here, Brandon. I mean, this is, it, it's not line for line, but it is kind of beat for beat what we've had so far. And the thing that really jumped out to me the most in the similarities was the the, the use of, of we, right? Which is done here in an academic sense. This is how I write when I'm an academic. I say we all the time. But why is Tillinghast using we when he's shouting at his friend like this, right? I think this is something that Lovecraft has has seen, you know, an academic doing, a scientist doing, and has said, I'm going to make my mad scientist character speak like that, even to his friend in, in person. But from, and maybe that's uh, an amateurish mistake, but I, I don't think so. I actually think it really makes him seem crazy. It makes him seem like a mad scientist. Yeah, I think he really kind of kicks off a major trope here, which is to have the mad scientist think in terms of like the universal good they can do and and think of themselves as part of this massive humanity and they and they can't separate what they're trying to do or be objective about it because they're so deep in it and i think lovecraft is either kind of kicking that trope off here or really nails it with Tillinghast in this story but i think you're right to point out that we see where he cribbed it from is just an academic source of, of a book that's long forgotten that st joshi found at a garage sale or something like that well i hope someday that someone will take an academic article of mine 
and, and turn it into a really excellent weird fiction story. More people will read it that way. So yeah. that'll be great. Well, so far, everything that we have talked about is really actually all just the backstory. But at this point now, we are caught up. We're back to the present. And we're, we're really, we're just back to this night in question, the kind of inciting incident, this message at midnight. And so when the narrator arrives at Tillinghast's house, he notices that none of the servants are around. And Tillinghast explains, you know, they all left three days ago and definitely don't worry about it. It's fine. And of course, this is creepy. It's ominous. Also, the lights don't seem to work anymore. Tillinghast is muttering to himself and he's shaking. But even with all of these things going on, despite all of this, the narrator actually finds himself excited to see what Tillinghast has discovered. And so he overlooks all of this creepiness and he follows him up to the laboratory in the attic which you just should never you should never do that and up there in this this attic laboratory there's a a machine that is glowing with a light that is definitely not electricity and the narrator sits down next to it and and Tillinghast then turns this machine on and now it's it's humming and the glowing light grows stronger at this point and so now Tillinghast explains what is going on he explains what is the science that he has done here He says that the light that the machine is generating is ultraviolet. Now, of course, right, humans can't see ultraviolet, so something weird is definitely going on here. And it turns out that Tillinghast has discovered that certain physical waves can awaken senses that we don't even know we have, uh, especially the pineal gland in our our brains. And these will let the, the narrator see strange and horrific things that we can't normally see, but which are always all around us nonetheless. And of course, this machine is emitting those waves now, so we're going to be in for something of a ride here. And we do get a description of what the narrator experiences at this moment. And there are some really great lines here from Lovecraft. And I'll read a few of them. The picture was very vivid for a while, but gradually gave way to a more horrible conception, that of utter, absolute solitude in infinite, sightless, soundless space. There seemed to be a void and nothing more. Then, from the farthermost regions of remoteness, the sound softly glided into existence. It was infinitely faint, subtly vibrant, and unmistakably musical, but held a quality of surpassing wildness which made its impact feel like a delicate torture of my whole body. And all of this, this whole description, right, this is terrifying to the narrator, who actually draws a revolver that it turns out he just keeps in his pants pocket. I don't know, in case you run into a mad scientist. It's the 1920s, you know, <laughs> this right. sort of thing happened. Yeah, 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 you got to be packing, right? <laughs> but Tillinghast just laughs at the revolver, and he delivers here the third monologue. I won't do this one. Uh, I'll summarize it here. In this one, he explains that the deal is that the waves that he's discovered let us see aspects of the world that we can't normally experience. But it also makes us visible to the monsters that can't normally experience us. That's bad news, obviously, right? And as it turns out, that this is what happened to the servants three days ago when one of them accidentally turned on this machine and could see and be seen. Yeah, there, there's a lot going on in this section of the story. And there, there are a few things I want to uh, point out before we move on. First, Love ha- Lovecraft just has this great description of Tillinghast as the narrator enters the home. And I don't know what it is about the description, but it just it's a lot of fun to me. Lovecraft writes that Tillinghast suddenly metamorphosed to a shivering gargoyle. 
I just I think that's a hilarious description of a human being. It's also a good uh, trick. I could use that from time to time. Yeah, I don't know if you walk into somebody's house and, and they metamorphose into a shivering gargoyle. I don't know. It's probably time to leave. But it's a zany image, and I love it. It's, it's kind of one of those weird things that Lovecraft does, where you know his writing, his prose isn't always great, but he comes up with these great images that I don't think anybody else has ever been capable of creating. Uh, the second thing I want to talk about is this business with the pineal gland. Uh, this is a real beacon for uh, philosophy. S.T. Joshi also points this out, but the pineal gland uh, or somewhere around there in the brain is where Rene Descartes believed that the soul and the body met. So it's the natural place for Lovecraft to locate the most important sense organ for seeing beyond the material world. Uh, Joshi, not being a real fan of this pit of Descartes' philosophy, is convinced that Lovecraft is having a bit of a go with the idea. But, you know, whether or not it's a joke, whether or not it's an intentional joke on Lovecraft's part, it really works for the story, for the theme of the story. And I also want to point out how the horror of this section sort of ramps up. Uh, Although the narrator has experienced all the typical signs that he should probably just get out of the house and let his ghoulish (laughs) friend self-destruct, he can't help but be curious of what achievements Tillinghast has actually made. And this is like a classic character flaw in Lovecraft's creations is that this this kind of wicked curiosity that that you you just can, no character is able to really do the right thing once they become curious. But there's a, but here's a word of advice I learned from Lovecraft reading this story. If your friend does turn into a mad scientist, boy, maybe try not to get too involved, uh, especially if they write you a letter in handwriting that looks different from what you're used to, uh, and especially if they then promise to show you things that no human being was built to, to see. I, I think that if you try this out, you're probably going to have a really bad time yeah i feel like since we're recording this brandon you're actually this is making this note to future you about future i, I actually was and and i and i had to limit myself making any like i'm gonna start carrying a pistol around uh, yeah. your house just in case just in case yeah. well i'm fine with that i think that the the, the thing here with these with these two guys with tillinghast and the, the narrator is you know in the narrator's excitement about this experiment he wants to see the results too is that they really are two sides of the same coin right that this this gauntlet that lovecraft throws down at the beginning of the story this warning of you shouldn't do these things if you're emotional if you're a man of action right tillinghast is an emotional man of action but i think we're meant to understand that the narrator is mr spock basically right and so he can handle these things but we're even seeing that breakdown here right where he should know these warning signs and does know these warning signs, he, but he now is getting carried away as well in the same thing that Tillinghast did. And I, this is this is the move that we see Lovecraft do a lot, and I really love it. Well, now these sensations are all going to get even more powerful, and the, the narrator here experiences a vortex of sound and motion. And he says that he feels like he's in a temple that reaches up into an aerial ocean of light. And he sees stars arranged in a strange constellation that looks like Tillinghast's face. And Brandon, I hope this never happens to you. I hope you don't ever see a constellation of my face. And now he sees creatures that he never thought possible. And these resemble giant jellyfish, which maybe doesn't seem so startling to us, you know, 100 years later now. But they cause the narrator to get really frightened, really terrified, mostly because they're able to move through things, right? They can move through each other. They can move through solid objects in the world that the the narrator can see in front of him. And they even move through the narrator himself. And of course, what's really going on here, right, is that what he understands now is 
what happened to the, the servants, right? And that's really what's driving his fear at this moment. And this is a pretty big part of the story, this scene here, what this, this world that we can't experience is like. And that's really the cosmic horror element of the story. And I have to say, I don't normally go in for this kind of descriptive writing that Lovecraft uses here, this kind of uh, trippy experience, I guess I would say. But I actually quite like the way that Lovecraft deploys this language in ways that I don't like it when other writers do. <coughs> right. I mean, you say trippy, I say psychedelic. It's tomato, tomato. But <laughs> this, this scene that Lovecraft describes is, is a scene we've all seen on trendy school folders from the 1990s and blacklight posters and <laughs> stuff like that. And I actually, you know, just want to drive that home by reading a brief description uh, in addition to what you've read, just to give a f- real deep sense of what's going on. This description I'm about to read takes place right after the narrator sees the aerial ocean light. Uh, Lovecraft writes this. After that, the scene was almost wholly kaleidoscopic. And in the jumble of sights, sounds, and unidentified sense impressions, I felt that I was about to dissolve or in some way lose the solid form. One definite flash I shall always remember. I seemed for an instant to behold a patch of strange night sky filled with shining, revolving spheres. spheres. And as it receded, I saw that the glowing suns formed a constellation or galaxy of settled shape. And this is the part, Glenn, that you already uh, mentioned, this shape being distorted, being the distorted face of Crawford Tillinghast. I mean, this is kind of classic psychedelic imagery, but it's about 40 years too early to catch on in like a major cultural way. Yeah, I'm interested to, to, to think about it. Maybe we'll have time to talk about this at the, at the end. I, I'm interested in where Lovecraft got this idea for these images, because this does feel sort of post 60s to us. I mean, you know, it kind of feels like something we might encounter in Philip K. Dick or something like that, a, you know, psychedelic fiction. But it's not, it's, you know, yeah, we're 40 years before, before the time there. Well, we are approaching the end of the story here, and it, it's now that Tillinghast understands that the, the narrator sees the horrors that he's wanted to show him, it is time for the ultimate mad scientist monologue. This one is a doozy. I'm not regretting that I didn't like pour myself a whiskey up here before I'm going <laughs> to deliver this big monologue. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best here. You see them? You see them? You see the things that float and flop about you and through you every moment of your life? You see the creatures that form what men call the pure air and the blue sky? Have I not succeeded in breaking down the barrier? Have I not shown you worlds that no other living men have seen? You think those floundering things wiped out the servants? Fool, they are harmless. But the servants are gone, aren't they? You tried to stop me. You discouraged me when I needed every drop of encouragement I could get. You were afraid of the cosmic truth, you damned coward. But now I've got you. What swept up the servants? What made them scream so loud? Don't know, eh? You'll know soon enough. Look at me. Listen to what I say. Do you suppose there are really any such things as time and magnitude? Do you fancy there are such things as form or matter? I tell you, I have struck depths that your little brain can't picture. I have seen beyond the bounds of infinity and drawn down demons from the stars. I have harnessed the shadows that stride from world to world to sow death and madness. Space belongs to me, do you hear? (sighs) Things are hunting me now, the things that devour and dissolve. But I know how to elude them. It is you they will get as they got the servants. 
Stirring, dear sir? I told you it was dangerous to move. I have saved you so far by telling you to keep still. Saved you to see more sights and to listen to me. If you had moved, they would have been at you long ago. Oh, don't worry. They won't hurt you. They didn't hurt the servants. It was seeing that made the poor devils scream so. My pets are not pretty, for they come out of places where aesthetic standards are very different. Disintegration is quite painless, I assure you. But I want you to see them. I almost saw them, but I knew how to stop. You were not curious? I always knew you were no scientist. Trembling, eh? Trembling with anxiety to see the ultimate things I have discovered? Why don't you move, then? Tired? Well, don't worry, my friend, for they are coming. Look, look, curse you, look. It's just over your left shoulder. <laughs> this, this is a real twist in the story here. I mean, it turns <laughs> out this whole thing has been a setup as Tillinghast's, you know, revenge and way out of being hunted by these creatures from beyond. That was another fantastic uh, performance of Cameron Tillinghast. I think you found your literary soulmate here in this character. <laughs> but but th- at this point, the story gets really dark really fast. And, and this turns out that, you know, Tillinghast is not interested in all at all about sharing uh, his new discovery with his best friend instead this is like a middle school style revenge fantasy like one day they'll see what i can really do and they'll be sorry they were ever mean to me i mean just tilling gas has really really lost it yeah and you're right this is really just he's trying to like get the homing beacon off of himself onto somebody else so that he can escape which is not the direction one thought this story was going to be going when it started i mean we knew nothing good was going to come of this but the motivation what's really driving him has has changed and there's a whole story here about what Tillinghast's experience has been with these creatures from beyond that has led them to be hunting him that he alludes to in this speech, but that we don't ever get. So there's definitely some space there for some fan fiction. Someone probably has already done it, August Durleth or somebody else. Right. But there's space there. And of course, we always love to encourage people to, to, to write you know, in between the lines here of these stories. That's something I would love to, to hear some listeners do or read read from some, some listeners. Well, we are really now very close to the end of the story. And we get the last classic Lovecraft trope here, which is the insistence that the events of the story are real. And, you know, you've probably even read about them in the newspaper recently. Oh, and you don't remember that? Well, it's just because you skipped that section, but it definitely really happened. And what we learn here is that the nearby police heard a gunshot in Tillinghast's home, and they burst into the house to find that Tillinghast was dead. So naturally, right, they arrest the narrator, but they just as quickly let him go when the autopsy shows that Tillinghast has just died of a, a stroke and that the shot that they heard had, in fact, been directed at this machine, not at Tillinghast. And so this allows us, the readers, right, to piece together from this information that the narrator just barely escaped being disintegrated by the creatures from beyond because he shot the machine that allowed him to experience this secret world. And, of course, right now we get the final trope, I suppose, right? The doctor who is treating the narrator doesn't believe the story that we've all just heard here. Uh, he insists that, that Tillinghast had merely hypnotized the narrator and made him think he was seeing all of these things. But there's just one fact that the narrator can't let go of that doesn't allow him to believe the doctor's explanation. And that's that they never found the bodies of the servants. Where did the servants go? That's a mystery that is never answered. And so he knows this really happened. He knows that what Tillinghast found is real. And now he is incapable of ever feeling alone 
or comfortable, and he often feels a hideous sense that something is pursuing him now that he knows that there is indeed more to the, the world, more to the universe than we can see or hear ourselves. And that's how the story ends, right? With the, the narrator unable to return to his previous life now that he understands the horror of the cosmos. Yeah, the narrator here has had an exceptionally bad trip. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it's just interesting to me that this story relies so heavily on a special machine to open the doors of perception. And I, you know, Huxley's The Doors of Perception wasn't written until 1954. But still, I mean, this story has a very hallucinogenic quality to it. And I wonder why electricity and ultraviolet light was the source of opening the third aisle, the third eye in the pineal gland, rather than like laudanum or something like that. And, you know, if we have time, Glenn, I'd just like to ask you what you think the reliance on technical means rather than like the use of drugs or chemistry. uh, Why did Lovecraft rely on that to tell this type of story? Why does Tillinghast need to be a builder of a, a weird machine rather than a chemist? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question because I think something that's really fascinating about the the science that Lovecraft is imagining here is that it's not what what what, what Tillinghast is doing is not showing something about the world, right? He's not, he's not using a kind of like special light to illuminate something that we can't normally see like a black light, right? Which a thing that we, you know, actually have. He's, activating sense organs that we have but that are not active right and so you could use chemistry for that in fact that seems more likely to be the way you could do such a thing i don't know you probably can't actually do such a thing but if you could that seems more likely to be the way that you could do that rather than to have a machine that is going to radiate those organs and get them to turn on right but i think that also maybe we're you know neither you nor i are have science backgrounds we're humanities people (laughs) but I expect that if if we looked into the state of science in the 1920s, when when Lovecraft wrote this and when he was you know, taking inspiration from actual scientific discourse here, that chemistry had not, especially biochemistry, had not gotten to that level where we could where we could have that sort of thing now, where we would think that you could do that to an organ through chemistry versus you know bombarding somebody with a, a special type of wave. Yeah, that's a really good point. I just I think. Because Lovecraft relies so heavily on this strange hallucinogenic imagery, to me, it would have made sense for him to go to something like really laudanum, like which is literary device that was used, you know, in the century before he really got writing. A lot of the stories he would have been reading would have relied on this trope of, you know, like laudanum abuse and opium hallucinations. Um, and it's just strange to me that when you're when you're looking at creating a a new way to see the world or looking beyond what the mere physical world can represent that that he would use this machine but i think you know around the time when he's writing this you know the edison and tesla are probably very having very public battles about whether or not electricity is safe and what it can do to the human body um and maybe new sources of light were being discovered at that time as well and that's really what he's looking at Although it could be the case that in materialism and modern science, it's just really about technology and not 
about chemistry as you as you suggested as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's really kind of what I was hinting at or trying to trying to get at earlier is that I think at this moment in the 20th century, physics is the rate, right? I mean, this is this is Einstein's moment as well, who is doing work on light, among other things. Uh, we even get some language in here, right, about matter and gravity. Lovecraft calls it magnitude, but matter and gravity, you know, whether they actually exist and, and, and trying to figure out what they are. And light is really interesting at this point in, in science history, uh, trying to decide if it is a particle or a wave, realizing it has properties of both, that it's kind of its own thing. And this was a moment of, of physics, which is going to culminate in you know, the development of uh, nuclear power, being able to you know, split the atom. And so I think that's I think that is just kind of very of the moment for Lovecraft here. I will also say, though, that just from a literary standpoint, thinking about this from a writing perspective, if you're going to give your characters drugs, but you want your reader to be sure that what they saw was not a hallucination, you've got a writing problem, right? Because I, I think Lovecraft does not want this to be ambiguous at the end. He rarely does. He wants us to know that what just transpired really happened. So we can't have our characters on laudanum at that point. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. I guess the effects of London would be <laughs> widely known to the to the readership of this story. Um, I do want to ask you another question here. In in, in the article that I mentioned before in uh, Crypt of Cthulhu, it's number thirty. It's issue number thirty eight. Came out in nineteen eighty six. Uh, I had to dig around the internet quite a bit to find this article, but um, S.C. Joshi just doesn't rank this very highly in terms of Lovecraft's works. He thinks the narrative is kind of slipshod and it has some real issues. Um, so I'd like to ask you where it ranks personally for you in, in Lovecraft's overall oeuvre. I think I kind of agree with you, you know, as we said on the outset here, that this was what we thought was one of Lovecraft's better stories. Um, and I agree with that as well. This was one that I really enjoyed reading, had a lot of, a lot of positive qualities to it, strong structure. Um, but where would, you, where would you place it in Lovecraft's oeuvre? Well, I'm certainly going to place it below all of the the famous novellas, right? This is not The Call of Cthulhu. It's not Shadow over Innsmouth. But of the the, the properly short stories, I think this is one that is probably my favorite of his short stories. And I'm actually really, I was really surprised to to learn this from you tonight that, that this, I mean, I was, we knew that it didn't sell, but I, I'm surprised that Joshi doesn't like this story. I thought everybody liked this story. Does Joshi have any information about how many times it was rejected? It must've been a lot because it sat around in his trunk for a long time. Yeah. He doesn't say in uh, the article that he wrote because that was, that article is called uh, sources for from beyond or something like that. And it's really just about uh, his discovery of this Elliot book and how, it, it just goes so uh, neatly with this Lovecraft story and how reading this obviously influenced Lovecraft in massive ways. But in the opening of the article, he's just not kind to the story. You and I have been really hard on Lovecraft in we some have, of the episodes yeah. we've covered. <laughs> but this story is not one that I would really go to to, to like be like, this story has this problem. The prose doesn't quite work. The characters are poorly drawn. The structure is bad. This is a solid story. So I, I was surprised to, to hear that as well. Well, I can see some of the things that are that people go to Lovecraft for that aren't present in this story. Uh, there's not a mystery to solve. We know uh, everything, just or almost everything, right? There's no sleuthing. There's no clues that need to be gathered. And there's certainly no, you know, this is not a mythos story, right? And so there, there's none of that. None of the things that maybe we think of as being Lovecraftian perhaps aren't really here. So I can see where people would, would not be 
you know, casual fans anyway would not be drawn to that. But I think that some of the things that are really strong about this story, I think the prose is dazzling here, especially these monologues. And and maybe that's one of the things that I love about this story is that perhaps of all of Lovecraft's stories, this is the one that you could read around the campfire, right? And, you know, someone someone better than me could really scare the, the heck out of some kids, right? In fact, it seems like a good, I don't know, man, what are you doing tomorrow night, right? You know, I think that'd be a lot of fun. And I, I think, you know, that's for me is one of the real appeals of this story. In some ways, this is kind of like Lovecraft's Hamlet, right? If we think of Hamlet as being like five monologues and some other stuff that happens, right? I mean, this is four monologues and, you know, some other stuff. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Um, do you have anything else? Do you have any other yeah, We are just about out of time. Okay. So. Well, well, I think on that note, then, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. We want to say a huge thanks to the con, to Phil Con, for having us, especially to our live audience for being here. Uh, you guys can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. You can find this show, Elder Sign, and, and all our shows, actually, wherever you get your podcast. So we hope you will check us out. We'd really love that. We'd love to have you reading along with us. Uh, you know, we do a lot of really awesome stories, a lot of fun stories, sometimes some bad stories, too. But we'd love to have you reading along with us. We're also doing a bunch more stuff here at PhilCon this weekend. We hope you'll join us for that tomorrow at 2 p.m. in the Crystal Ballroom 2. Um, everybody at Clay Temple Media will be together to play a little game we're calling Make It So. Basically, we're going to compete with one another to make the best lineup of 90s TV shows, and the audience is going to vote to see which one of us wins. And if I, if I don't win, I'm going to, I've got some speeches ready to go. <laughs> right. Uh, just once again, that's in Crystal Ballroom 2. Uh, Glenn and Brent will be doing a live show of uh, their uh, Sandman Neil Gaiman uh, podcast hanging out with the Dream King. That's going to be tomorrow at 4 p.m. in this room. Uh, we also have some stuff to give away here, including some books. Yeah, come on up and get some books yeah. if you like some books. So, thank you, guys. Thank you. 